Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Benjamin Bingham is the CEO and founder of Three Sisters Sustainable Management focused on 100% impact portfolios across private and public asset classes. He is from the family that founded Tiffany and has been active for decades in the sustainable investment space. He will share 10 years of small investments with big impact. This is Radical Truth. Good afternoon from our studio in Amsterdam. Uh, I'm thrilled I have a very old friend, not not old as a, in ages that he's been around, but someone I've known for a while. So today um, we have Benjamin Bingham, which I had no idea that he comes from such a well-known family. I only discovered this, you know, recently. I just always liked him as a very dedicated guy. And I, I, I knew him when he was actually working for this Maryland asset manager. And then he left and focused on sustainability. So I'm going to let Ben introduce himself for those of you who don't uh, know who uh Ben Bingham is and Three Sisters or haven't read his book. So, so Ben, uh, tell us a bit of your journey, which kind of brought you to your here and some of the prestigious people in your family, which I also didn't understand or know. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you, Robert. I'm going to take the headset off while I'm talking. It's, it's helpful when I'm listening to others or questions that come. I hope, I hope there will be questions after I speak. Um, so I'm going to start with a, a shameless uh, self-promotion. <laughs> you know, I, I wrote a book called Making Money Matter, Impact Investing to Change the World in 2015. And uh, Julie Davids, uh, who is the head of purposeful investing at BNP Paribas Bank of the West, when she introduced me once, she said, this is the Bible of impact investing. <laughs> um I was also once introduced uh, as the Moses of, of impact investing by the notorious uh, guy who started Opportunity Collaboration. So the, the truth of the matter is that I have been doing socially conscious investing really since the 80s. Um, I, my first um, thing was a social venture, w w which my wife and I were involved in for a number of years uh, called Triform, and, and it's now called Triform Campfield Community. It's an agricultural community that we I raised the money for when I was in my 20s. Um, and it, it, we had 80 acres and um, working with people with special needs that, that were borderline, um, who wanted 
academics as well as uh, you know social experience, and and um, that's grown phenomenally. It's now about four hundred acres, and the Rockefeller farming part of the Rockefeller family has donated land to it, etc. So. That was my first thing. And then in the 90s, I was involved with the Investor Circle, which is a well-known venture, early stage venture group of investors around the United States. And my brother was one of the first uh, members of that and and gave me the directory in 1993. So I began to meet uh, those other early uh, thinkers in the private space. You know, the mutual funds, et cetera, were already going. So at the end of the 90s, um, I'll just give you a little, a quick uh, survey of, of what happened. I, I decided um, after a, a, a sabbatical kind of year from working with two ventures um, intensively, one was in biological healthcare and one was in work workflow technology, um, I, I got involved in ritual in Peru, and and you'll and the reason is that my grandfather discovered Machu Picchu. So I started taking people to uh, during that year. I went there about eight times, and I got really interested in ritual. I was 50, turned fifty in two thousand, and I wondered what am I going to do for the rest of my life. And I actually considered um, becoming part of the movement for religious renewal. Uh, went to an esoteric uh, training in, in uh, seminary in Stuttgart, Germany. And it's there that I, I got the idea that maybe the universal ritual was money. And if I really wanted to make a difference, we could change the way we think about money in the world and change the, you know, all the assumptions that we have and really think of money as an expression of our highest intention. Anyway, through circumstance and, and chance to some extent, I, I, was, I met someone from Lake Mason and became, I decided that, you know, that the people I knew that were doing good things with their money were only using about 5% of it um, for good stuff, either philanthropy or, or venture. Um, and that bothered me. It was the model that the foundation world had used for years. And I, I just felt like, what about the other 95% of your money? So I decided to join Lake Mason and see if I could figure out how to create portfolios that were 100% aligned with people's values. Well, that uh, I, it was hard to do within that circumstance, uh, limited to public companies, uh, limited to um, the mutual funds that were accepted by Lake Mason, et cetera. There were all kinds of limitations and certainly uh, was tough to do private investing in that space. So when uh, Citigroup took over Lake Mason in 2006 and I started seeing what they were doing with manipulating interest rates and um, of my clients uh, that I'd built up a, a book of friends and family, basically. Um, and, and they were basically, you know, coaxing us in, you know, I didn't do it, but uh, getting all of our clients to sign paperwork for bogus mortgages. It was time to get out. So in 2007, those clients who wanted to come with me uh, left Lake Mason and we started doing uh, impact investing private and public um, in 2007. My first fund was called High Impact. Uh, didn't know that word was going to become... Um, used universally and nobody 
particularly, um, it doesn't matter if it came first from me or from Rockefeller, but um, I have used that word because it makes sense. We're, we're thinking about what's the impact of our investments. So since 2007, I've, I've done both public and private. In 2011, I started my own RIA called Three Sisters Sustainable Management. And we just put out a 10-year anniversary report. report. And on the, on the chat here, you can see the, the website, Scarab Funds, LLC. Um, and uh, just check out the 10-year report, and you'll get much more detail about what we've been doing. Yeah, but why did I do this? You know, the question may come, and, and I, I'd love to just give you a little bit of a background on, on my family and, and where I'm coming from. Not too much, but just uh, it, it's just an, it was an interesting configuration. My great-grandfather was Charles Tiffany, and so his granddaughter was my grandmother, and my father benefited from that. We, I grew up on a large farm in Connecticut, probably at one time the largest farm in Connecticut. So we were very privileged. I went to Groton School in Yale. Um, and my grandmother's husband was Hiram Bingham, the grand, my grandfather who discovered Machu Picchu. But the missionary side of me, the side of me that was looking for meaning in my life, I, I think may stem a little bit from the fact that my my ancestors, uh, many of them were missionaries. The first um, Thanksgiving actually was, um, if it happened, it was Elder Brewster was uh, related to both my parents. Uh, he was the spiritual leader of the on the Mayflower. And um, from what I've heard from both uh, indigenous people and from other descendants of that time, actually they did have 50 years of peace in that community. So, um, you know, the, the, we are in a tendency of thinking historically of black and white. And there was a lot of terrible stuff that went on in that, in that time. Um, but apparently that community was good. Um, so his uh, descendant was the first Hiram Bingham, who was the first missionary to Hawaii. So it's part of in my blood. My father was also a kind of missionary oriented in a different sense. He was a spiritually oriented person who got involved in the 30s with um, the work of Rudolf Steiner and got very, as a diplomat in London, got very interested in what I think is extremely important. Um, the threefold social order uh, way of thinking, which is um, very much part of, of, of how I think about money and investing. Um, he's now well known for his constructive dissent in, in uh, France. He worked with the French resistance, contrary to the U.S. position. Um, at the time, he issued thousands of visas to families escaping from, from France instead of going to um, you know, the concentration camps. And um, he also hid in his own house and helps personally uh, many famous people um, working with Eleanor Roosevelt. So Mark Chagall um, stayed in his house and hid his paintings there and then, and then escaped from there. And they were lifelong friends. So all of that inspired me. So when I was at Yale University and I, I was a uh, you know, anti-war person from probably from childhood. Um, 
I decided to take a leave of absence so that my lottery number, my very high lottery number would come up and um, I would not be drafted and then I'd be free from the concern. I had prepared to be a conscientious objector to the war. And in that time, I went to find out more about my father's um, worldview. I went to Emerson College and there I fell in love with biodynamic agriculture. And I did a two-year training there and actually farmed um, at Triform and, and also on our farm at, in Connecticut uh, for 10 years. And I've been growing my own food biodynamically for 50 years. So uh, all of those things play into the way of thinking. You know, agriculture is, is a good model for managing a portfolio of resources. I mean, you just think of companion planting or, you know, hedging around a field to reduce the volatility in the, the winds uh, of a field that changes the ecosystem. Um, you know, you might think of um, rebalancing as, you know, the, the rotation of crops or, or um, you know, diversification instead of monoculture is, you know, diversification in portfolio management. So all of these ideas, uh, even double digging, you know, can, can be, uh, you know, related to thinking about um, due diligence. All of these played into my thinking. And, and now I've got this, a group of funds called Scarab Funds, um, which are, it's, it's in the form of a series LLC, which means one private placement memorandum covers all the different strategies that we do, which are range from a short duration kind of microfinance um, uh, private debt and uh, intermediate term private debt, which is more like venture debt, because many of the ventures that we um, have supported over the years, we've founded a number, are very early stage. And so um, there's always a chance that they'll be converted to equity, which has happened in a number of cases. And then we have our hedge fund, which is a public equity uh, ESG fund, um, which is also linked with CSR Hub, which we were founders of. I'm on the board of CSR Hub. If you don't know it, it's a, the largest aggregator of ESG information. Um, so you can compare in your public portfolios how the companies you're invested in compare with their peers. Um, and then we do private equity and, and, and real assets. So really, my idea originally was to create a 100% portfolio um, that was a beautiful way of um, having a meaningful relationship with your money. Um, and we're welcoming new LPs into Scarab Funds. We're also welcoming co-investors on, on a larger scale who want to place money with our um, existing portfolio or, or new companies um, that we can find together to invest in. Um, I have a great team. Um, our hedge fund is, is run by a man, that Dan Martell, who had his own trading company for decades uh, on Wall Street, and all, he was also a member of the Chicago Board of Trade. He's a brilliant investor, and um, since we added, it took him a while to persuade me to do hedging because it has a negative connotation, and I didn't know if um, socially conscious people would like it. 
But because of this agricultural image that I gave you already, it really made sense to use options along with stocks to reduce the volatility in the portfolio. And it has, that's been actually very advantageous um, since we started uh, using op options in 2019. Uh, the portfolio has doubled in value with very little volatility. So we really want to grow that portfolio into the into the hundreds of millions or more. Dan's very comfortable with big numbers. He was an institutional investor at, uh, you know, with banks and uh, actually uh, worked, uh, ran a division of BNP Paribas for a while. Um, so we have that capacity. Um, I have a wonderful uh, CFO, Angelina Bellocchio, who is, who's been um, with me for um, the whole of uh, the, the experience since 2012 um, and really very advanced thinker and, and uh, smart, detailed person because I'm more of a big picture thinker. So she's really managed the, the business and, and helped in the, the investing in the private side. And Sandeep Goel has joined the board recently. He's a um, serial entrepreneur who sold his first company when he was in his in his uh, early years in the late twenties uh, for forty million to uh, WebMD, and has been doing uh, permaculture and um, and also impact investing and in, in different kinds of technological investing. And joined has been bringing some wonderful companies to our attention um, and we just recently if you look on the media page of Scarab Funds LLC you, you'll see that Ernest Gonzalez has recently joined as a partner so we're ready to scale and really excited about it I hope that gives you you know a little bit of a background um, I, I had a couple of questions I mean um, so you gave a, a good plug for your company, which normally we don't really do. But so now I'm going to ask you the difficult question. What has been your biggest failure with three sisters? What has been your biggest disappointment? Because I hear from many, many uh, investors who go into the ESG and impact space, and they're all incredibly disappointed that all the ones that were talking a lot about, I want to do this, I want to do that, and that. And in the end, they basically, they find it very, very difficult to get investors to put up money because they talk a lot, but they don't really do anything. Have you experienced that? Because you're still quite small, even though you have this, this network of prominent family. What, so what has been for you the biggest disappointment of the sustainable investment space? Well, you know, it's well known that fear and greed uh, run the market, right? So people are fearful of doing anything unusual. Um, and, you know, people can be really big on, on doing something socially responsible with some of their money, but the greed aspect uh, makes them think that they have to do something, uh, you know, that they don't really want to know about to make a lot of money. Mm. And so that's a big disappointment. I think, uh, you know, I think in terms of a big failure, I, I think early in my, um, you know, trying to learn about private investing after being at Lake Mason for seven years and Citigroup, um, I, I wasn't 
clear enough in myself about the, the, you know, the fact that now I know that when somebody says it's a 10 year investment, it's probably a 12 year investment. Things, things take a long time. And, um, and I've, you know, people get uncomfortable with that, that long period of waiting. And so, you know, I, I, it's, not really a failure because those companies there there are a number of our companies that we've that we still believe will be very successful but we don't have a lot of exits yet so even though i've been doing this for 10 years um and so that you could call that a failure or you could call it um you know i i didn't exit early from companies that that needed a lot of handholding mm-hmm. um and i've put most of my energy into supporting the companies we've invested in rather than marketing because I felt like I either needed some other big names as partners or I, you know, that had track records that were, you know, brilliant or, you know, I had to have some, some great exits. So what's sitting in our, in in our evergreen funds, these are evergreen because, because new people can add their investments in are are some, you know, uh, you know, little giants, you know, little uh, gems that um, I think we even have unicorns in there. Um, a couple of them that I think are very likely to be unicorns. Um, one of them is is um, Polymateria, and it's probably going to go public in a couple of years, if not sooner. And the other is uh, Illumibu, which is, uh, you can look it up. It's a, um, a wonderful company that is, that has, um, biological um, um, detectors for, for, you know, that that can uh, trace symptoms uh, in 30 different ways. Um, And they just uh, acquired a cardiogram. Uh, This is on our website if you want to read up on it. Cardiogram is the first one to really give early warning signs for for, uh, signs for heart attacks. Um, so these are companies that have the the scope and the, and the market potential um, to make to become very large, um, but they're still sitting in our portfolio, and 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 it's not something we can, um, you know, it's not there yet. How much of the your assets are committed to private equity as compared to public equity? From three uh, about three quarters. Three quarters is in private equity. Yeah. Private and private debt. So that's what I've been spending most of my time on, hand-holding, trying to figure out when a, when a company is uh, not going to be able to pay back their debt. Then we have have taken over and we've uh, merged companies that were had great uh, people in them. One of my favorite stories right now is I'm chairman of Infinite Workflow, um, which is a, basically a compilation of three different companies that we had invested in. And now we have the patents from one company and the inventor. We have the CTO of another company, and we have the, the um, relationship with MDC, which is a 50-year-old uh, nonprofit that had been remarkable in uh, marketing. Our One of the companies was basically helping uh, people that were outside the federal um, benefic- benefit system, didn't know how to collect on food stamps or anything like that. Uh, we we made it easy for them to fill out one form 
uh, with a technology that would then um, populate all the other forms so that uh, we actually uh, raised for people who were outside the system over a, a number of years, uh, over $2 billion of federal um, money. And that uh, MDC who helped us get that into Ohio, North Carolina, South Carolina, and a number of other places was such a wonderful partner. And so when, when another company failed that had a technology that could, that was better uh, than what we were doing, we, we, um, he agreed, the guy I'd been working with there agreed to, uh, let's create a new company. And the, the purpose is to do what MDC does, which is integrate social services through an online service that really empowers individuals who are outside the system, who are homeless, who don't have jobs, whatever, who need help. Um, they they can um, find, you know, what are the companies in a particular, or, sorry, social services in a, in a given region that are working together and how can we coordinate um, a success pattern um, that you can drive yourself as an individual. So it's a, it's empowering uh, also for the social services to know of each other. You uh, in, were one of the early investors in a AHP, uh, American Homeowners Protection. For those of you who don't know it, I really liked, uh, he, he spoke once, uh, at at TBLI, I was just very impressed with the whole idea where you know Blackstone and everybody were just hoovering up all of these uh, crappy mortgages that no one could pay, just mm -hmm. to you know flip the company, kick the people out, charge high rents, and make money back quickly. They did the opposite. You know, they they said no, 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 we're going to keep the people in there. Let's renegotiate and 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 not kick them out on the street. So, so you were an early investor. It, in we were we were the first the first institutional investors, so we put in uh, you know enough money to help them get started and and uh, uh, yeah, so I'm very proud of that because they, they George Newbury, uh, yeah. wonderful guy, he's, he's Jorge. a couple. Of, Jorge. <laughs> well, no, he goes by George. I goes by George. Okay. Yeah, it's it's felt like Jorge, but he's his family's originally from Argentina, but he grew up here and he calls himself mm -hmm. George. Um, but um, yeah, he's uh, he had this innovative idea, which is really one of the things that I'm always looking for is innovation that's really going to change the paradigm. And his his idea was to buy up bundles of mortgages, yeah. houses under a hundred thousand dollars worth of mortgages that wasn't worthwhile for the banks to go into foreclosure. Sure, um, and. And then just negotiate with the family, you know, what can they pay? Because he would get them for, you know, less than 50 cents on the dollar, sometimes for nothing. And so he could, he had a huge margin to work with and he could work it out with them what they could afford. So we, you know, he now owns, I'm sure, well over 3,000 homes um, where, where families have been able to stay. Yeah, I, and the other thing that he did, which I love and innovated and, and democratizing, is that he was one of the first to get granted. I think he was the seventeenth firm to get granted from the SEC the right to do crowdfunding, 
so online with non-accredited investors. So non-accredited investors can go there. I, I send everybody that I know, like maybe I shouldn't say this as an advisor. I don't take this as advice, but if, <laughs> if you're not accredited, it's a place you can put 10% of your liquid um, assets, if you have any, into that fund. And, and it started out at 12%. So when we first invested, it was at 12% for five years deal so um and now it's i think seven percent has been gradually going down um so that's um that's ahp and another one like that i'll just mention because i love what they're doing and we've been investing in a number of their you know cherry picking from their deals um, is called small change so they they're also um friends with george and i met them you know when we were all on a panel together um and small change is another place where non-accredited investors can invest in really cool, socially conscious uh, real estate deals um, with small amounts of money. And what is your like, because uh, you said three quarters, it's unusual, three quarters of your investment is in private equity. Mm -hmm. um, I always had the impression it was mainly liquid assets. So what is your ticket size? Do you only do like seed or early stage or? super startups well you know it's like diversification i i you know we, we do everything and and that's i guess you could say you know the failure is that we didn't grow um enough uh, and i think the success in the future is going to be because we will grow mm -hmm. um i think we're on the edge of growing uh, dramatically because we have a model uh, that would work on a large scale but um, so, you know, I don't, uh, you know, ticket size depends on, you know, the general um, asset management idea that you don't put more than five or 10 percent into any one thing in a portfolio. So um, it depends how much money you you're, you have in that portfolio, how big the ticket size is. We're not afraid of large ticket sizes and um, especially in co-investments. And I think with um with new partners, we would be very happy to do very large ticket sizes um, with, um, you know, with game-changing ideas that um, that make sense. But you have to do it in a way that that's managing the risk. What is your average ticket size now to invest in a in a private equity opportunity? Um, well, around three hundred thousand to two million. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But you're now now that you're best buds with Eno, who wanted to buy your family's company. I, I don't. I guess you're not involved in Tiffany anymore. <laughs> but LVMH, you know, I wanted. I think I don't know if they did it, but they wanted to buy Tiffany. Now you can just call up Eno and say, "Hey, how about parking some of your billions with three sisters?" Yeah, I mean, a lot of talk, you know, there's been a lot of talk. I have uh, institutional investors that in the, the refrain that I keep hearing is when you're when you're 100 million under management, come back to us. We love what you're doing. Um, and we're you know, we're not there yet. We're getting close uh, with some of the potential investments that, that will be coming our way in the, in the next uh, year. Um, my, you know, it's. It's always embarrassing, really, that I've been doing this so long and it's, you know, we're, we've had, you know, our clients get older, they need their money. So it's been like a sandhill as I've grown, gotten new investments in, I've had people that need their money out. And so, mm. you know, 
it's you know it's always been in the you know 20 to 40 million range um, up to 70 million was the highest um so it's been in that range for a long time i you know and i just don't have the manpower myself to to be really doing a lot of marketing but you know that's that can change and with the right partners and i hope some people on the on the call will know somebody if you aren't interested yourself who really wants to do serious you know impact investing um that's you know, we have a lot of experience. We have a lot of failures, uh, you know, when you talk about failures and you learn from them. Mm. So um, I think, you know, one of the reasons I have someone right now who's thinking of putting a large amount of money in is because we have so many things that are close to exits, um, you know, that, that are, you know, so it makes more sense to put money into our companies that are mature and and have gone through hard times and are now you know getting closer to exits um because uh, with a evergreen uh, model uh, new investors will benefit from that right i'm going to start taking a couple of questions beata wanted to know ben if you didn't have the fortune and we're going to start your journey now what would you do and how would you start <laughs> Well, I can say I didn't have my fortune when I started. Um, so I'm fifth generation. My father was was of the old school. You know, he he believed that. You know, he he took his wealth and invested it in in raising eleven children. I was the tenth of eleven, and um, he was more interested in philosophy and spirituality than he was in making money. So he basically used up his inheritance during his lifetime. We all got scholarships because, um, you know, the Groton, you know, wanted to, wanted Bingham's there. And, um, you know, he was, he had some big failures um, and they weren't necessarily his fault. I can tell you offline sometime, uh, pretty interesting stories of things that, that didn't work out for him. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't have done anything different. Uh, you know, I had to learn the ropes, uh, learned wealth management and became a certified financial planner. That was all to understand how the system worked. That was what I did first. Um, and I used socially responsible mutual funds and so forth in the beginning. And then really moved into, uh, you know, the exploring the, the whole public equity space was the next step for me, which is, you know, there's, there's like 80,000 or more public companies and who's got a universe of more than 2000 that they're looking at. It's just, there's so many public companies that nobody knows about that are actually really cool. So I, I had a, I used a technology to, to search the internet for cool companies in the beginning. And I worked with uh, Paul Hawkins uh, research group and we shared um, information with each other initially and I found some really, really neat companies that way. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to leave Citigroup was because I could not invest in companies that were not recommended by Wall Street. Yeah. And it was very limiting. Mm. So. Beata had another question. Ben, you need to be very fast in evaluating people you can or cannot work with, investors you cannot, can or cannot work with. What is your litmus test? What is your bullshit barometer? How do you filter apart from greed, lack of integrity, or dishonesty? Yeah, I, I, I think that I'm 
I'm, uh, if you could say, if I wanted to change anything about myself, I, I tend to be very positive about people and naive in a sense. I, I believe people, um, but I would be looking for generosity of spirit um, in people that I, that I would want to work with. And that's what I do look for. And that's who I have around me now. Um, integrity and generosity are the two main things. Um, and, tr- and transparency. So, you know, I think t- transparency and collaboration are the, are the, you know, the, the, heart of business or should be the heart of business going forward and it's um it's a whole new world if you if you think of um fraternity the you know from the french revolution only really being the ideal for business um i think of reciprocity uh, as another good word for 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 business and for you know the whole world of commerce so um i hope that that's a you know that's it's always hard to tell you know whether somebody's selling or whether they're really who they are. Yeah, that that's that's very very true. Uh, Arthur wanted to know how do you deal with investors who who look at impact investment as a fad? Well, um, <laughs> there's no harm in getting into the fad. Um, you know, if they if they believe it, I do believe that it is a fad, but I do believe it's a fad that's based on. Um, sorry, I just had a something pop up on my screen. I I believe it's a trend that's a re, it's a reaction to how bad things have been for so long, and um, I actually think of the public equity part of our portfolio as something that should expand dr- dramatically. And, and what I'd like to see is that the ESG world puts less emphasis on proxy voting, which is fine. I don't have a problem with it if you want to do that, if you're an activist and you like to um, try to, you know, change the minds of people in a, in a corporation that's doing stuff that you don't like. Um, that's a hard job, and, and and some people are doing it very well. But I think more and more of people's portfolios should be investing in companies because they're good, not because they're bad. Uh, I was blown away at an SRI in the Rockies meeting when someone from the podium said, you should be ashamed if you don't own Exxon. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? I'm in the wrong room or something. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I understand what they're doing. It's very, it's very interesting that they're infiltrating these companies and trying to turn them around. But I, and I think it's a cultural trend. I think a lot of the people in those companies want to do the right thing. The companies themselves are set up to be only profitable. And that's the underlying problem of, of our time um, is that fiduciary responsibility is, is, is means uh, by definition, by law in some cases, that you have to put profit above everything else. And um, it's stupid because really it's, a, it's self-defeating. You're destroying resources uh, on the planet to become profitable, which in the end won't really work. So I think the trend is there. I think the public equities themselves could be a barometer for human values. And that's why we do public equities at all. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of, re- you know, it's a little bit indirect. In terms of impact, um, it is indirect. You're just you're just 
you know, you're, you're saying what you think the value of a company is. And that's not really helping them directly, except the higher their value is, the more they can borrow for expansion. So that's, that's the, that's the indirect benefit. But the, the other benefit is if the bad companies see that they're being devalued by ESG investors because they're doing bad things and the good companies are being valued more because they're doing good things then that will have a huge impact. And I think it is already. Um, sorry, it's a long answer, but I see, I mean, a lot of people are saying that last year was a was a green bubble, you know, because a lot of people investing in cool green things uh, did very well. We were among them. We were up 38% last year, you know, based on, in our public equity hedge fund. Um, you know, uh, we did have a lot of really cool things last year. Now we're kind of back to, um, you know, more plain vanilla type of investing. Um, so we're opportunistic. Um, we say if there's a trend, we will jump on that trend. And we will, if things get overvalued, even if they're good companies, we will cut back. So we're not, we're not just... Um, uh, we think it's a, a little bit um, naive to think that you should just own a portfolio of good companies and stick with it forever. Um, it's much more appropriate, I think, to go with the the changes in valuation and see yourself as part of the barometer and really make sure that good companies are valued properly. That's what we do. Do you uh, do you uh, give any talks to young people at, at business schools? I do, yeah. I've spoken uh, at you know, Bard's uh, Sustainable MBA program and, and others. Um, I, I was invited by BNP Paribas to speak to 40 ultra-high net worth uh, millennials out in Silicon Valley, and they were partying most of the time, and I'm not <laughs> sure they remember anything I said, but I actually have stayed friends with some of them. Um, and, yeah, I love um, talking to the next generation. There's... Um, um, there's, you know, some some great people that um that are turning to us as you know sponsors for things that they want to do, and we're developing things like eco resorts um, that some of the very wealthy millennials uh, want to work with indigenous people and in 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 sacred areas um, to make sure that the you know, the ecotourism doesn't ruin the area and, and really promotes the wisdom of the indigenous people. Some of the young people that I'm working with are wanting to do that. I have other contacts that are, you know, trying to create micro cities with really cool, smart cities. Um, you know, uh, you know, my son is even involved in designing a skate skate. Uh, he's a he's a well-known skateboarder with a skate shop in Austin, Texas, called No Comply. Um, and he's involved with. I, I introduced him to the the micro city uh, impulse, which which would incorporate skateboarding into the design of of urban cities that are sustainable. Thank you to our guest and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe.